When I think of Portland, Oregon, I think of coffee houses, bicycling everywhere, bookstores, historic bridges, beautiful parks. You get the idea. Well, those are all awesome things about Portland, but there's also a really cool university there, the University of Portland. Their School of Nursing has a Doctor of Nursing practice program. One of their alumni, Dr. Maya Strom, now has her very own holistic practice right there in Portland, where she says she's able to practice slow, gentle medicine, which allows her to make her patients feel supported and a true member of their own healthcare team. I mean, we all want our healthcare provider to treat us like that, right? Dr. Strom says the DMP program at UP taught her not to settle in her career, but to find her own authentic voice and practice with integrity, intellect, and curiosity. This sounds like a wonderful program to me. So if you're thinking about going back to school and becoming a nurse practitioner, go to nursing.up.edu to learn more about their doctorate program. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have an awesome person that I am so excited to introduce to you guys. This week, I have someone who I met a few months ago at the Tennessee Student Nurses Association, and she is a student nurse, which you guys know how I feel about student nurses. You guys are awesome. But she's also, her background and childhood is one that is very near and dear to my heart, And she's caused me to really think about and have enough courage to open up a little bit about my own background to try to make a difference in someone else's life. So I want to introduce you now to Jerlia. Jerlia, am I saying your name right? Yes. Okay, awesome. (laughs) It's okay. It gets butchered all the time. It's fine. You did great. (laughs) Thank you. And you go by Jer? Yes. That is so cool. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) So welcome to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So what we're going to do, just to kind of let you guys know what the format of this this episode is going to be, we're going to, Jared and I are going to talk a little bit about our childhoods. And the reason that we're doing that is we both have had sort of traumatic childhoods in different ways. And we there is a story that we're going to do that's the bad nurse story or, or bad medical professional story, I guess I should say. There are lots of nurses and medical professionals in this story. It is a, it's disturbing. I'll just say that right up front. So it's going to, it's going to have, it deals with children, obviously. Uh, We are going to talk about sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional abuse and just lots of different things. So if those are triggers for you, you might not want to listen to this. It's probably going to be really difficult. Some of the things we're talking about, but that being said, I do think that it's, important for us to talk about these things, get it out there, out in the light, and talk about it so that people who are victims are not ashamed of their childhood and they're able to talk and we can help people who have not been victims and and have not had childhoods like this to understand about it. So I want to start out by just, Jared's going to talk about her story. I'll interject and talk about my story a little bit, and then we'll tell this this story, and we'll just see if we can't maybe shed some light on this. So, Jared, you want to tell everyone a little about your childhood, about yourself, and how you kind of got where you are today? Okay, so my name is Jer. I like to go by Jay or Jer, and I'd like to say that I found myself through nursing. As a child, I wasn't 
really accept it for who I was. I didn't accept myself and the people around me didn't accept who I was. So I really didn't discover that until I got into nursing school. Um, But before I get to that point, I want to take it back to growing up as a child in my household. So I was raised by my mom and my stepfather, who were both abusive to me. And I have five other siblings. I have three brothers, four brothers and a sister. And our house was basically divided inside. Like my brother, well, my two stepbrothers and my stepfather and my mom was just like one family. And it was myself, my sister, and my oldest brother. It was like we were the other, the others. And that's how life was just throughout until we all moved out on our own. So there will be things that happen. Like, for instance, I remember when we were little children and we'll be like eating and like sometimes we'll wait until like my brother would finish his food and we'll just eat his leftovers. We'll be standing around the table trying to, you know, get whatever he got. Like my mom would like lock the food up and give him access to anything. And those things had just happened like over, over our, like our lifetime to the point where we didn't just acknowledge it, like just how bad it was. And like we would live in, we grew up living in garages and inside the house, we would have like a five bedroom house and then it'll be like me, my brother, my sister, we're all sleeping in garages while the other brother and whoever else is like a guest whose family members with my stepfather, they're sleeping wherever they want to, but we're sleeping in garages. And so we would have to ask like if we wanted to come out to eat or something like that, or like if my parents left the house, they would have my brother like basically keep an eye on us and tell like whether or not we, if we got out the garage or something like that. And so that left us feeling like it made us feel bad as kids. Like we didn't have anybody to protect us. By having that division in the house, we felt like, okay, you know, maybe it's just me. Or maybe it's just us, like we're the bad kids, like we're the unwanted kids. Because if these like adults can show affection to other kids, then what's wrong with us? So of course, all of that, having the closest people to you just treat you like that, it just made me feel really, really bad about myself. So of course, in middle school, high school, elementary school, all the way back, always suffered from just really bad social anxiety. And it wasn't like the anxiety that you get where like you're a little afraid and you kind of get over it. It was to the point where I would probably pass out if I had to stand up in front of people. Like, of course, I was isolated from people. And so I didn't really start having friends until I got like in high school. And I like I ended up meeting like friends in high school that were like really close to me and I lost those friends like they couldn't understand like why I could never go out with them but going back to like the household during that time my sister had moved out 
on her own. And that just left me as like the only other child. We still had like my stepbrothers. They were my little brothers, but it was just me. And that's when I noticed like things really was just not good. I was super depressed because my sister, like me and my sister and my oldest brother, we all have a connection, but we have that connection because we know what it's like to deal what we dealt with with my mom and my stepdad. And we just like stuck to each other, like super close to, to see them like go off and like live their own lives or try to get adjusted to life and leave me there. I just felt really sad. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be there. So that really gave me motivation to work hard and get out of the situation I was in because it was only getting worse. And I still lived in the house, but I was kind of putting back so I could get an apartment. And while I was living in the house, I was still extremely depressed living there because it was just like more emotional abuse. We weren't like really, we were physically abused, but it wasn't to the extent of emotional abuse. Like the emotional abuse was like just, it was God awful. So I eventually got accepted into the nursing program after taking my prereqs. And it was bad. Like it, it, it was really bad. It was times where I would just be in my apartment and I realized like there's no one here. Like I can't call anybody to be like, hey, I just need to vent. I need to talk to you. Like even when I got accepted into the nursing program, it was like a bank teller celebrated my acceptance. Like, and he was like, wow, your parents must be proud. And I'm like, (laughs) and I'm just like smiling at him. But deep inside, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be a journey. So I was scared, like waking up every day thinking like, okay, if I was to die today, like who would know? Who would know if I, if anything was to happen to me? So I went to talk to my professor who I was like afraid of. And she's probably listening to this, going to listen to this. And I was just like really afraid of her. But I knew I need to talk about my grade. So in there, just, and she's just like, you know, did you study for this? Did you do this and that? Did you do that? And I'm just like, oh my gosh. And so she finally just asked me because, I mean, I was looking like depression. Um, I, I just looked the hotness. And she was like, you know, I don't want to know. like you know, whether or not you're studying, is there anything going on at home? And that was just like the magic word because I felt like, like throughout childhood, nobody looked at that. Nobody asked that. Like I could go to school and like jackets on and it's cold, it's hot outside and nobody would ask like, am I okay? And it's like, when she said that, like, I just bawled because I, I wasn't okay. And I realized that I was trying to be strong for like everybody and I wasn't being strong for myself. And so she got me the help that I needed. I ended up going to a clinic, like getting anxiety medication because I was diagnosed with like severe anxiety, severe depression at the time. And it just goes to show like what adverse childhood experiences can do. The difference of having like someone to love you, a parent, a loving parent or a loving guardian versus like not having that at all. Yeah. I'm like a lot better now. So that's just to say that you can really overcome. The one thing that was kind of struck me as you were talking is how important it is for people, for me and you and everyone 
to be aware of people around us because your instructor, her, that keenness of eye and her just looking at you and taking the time to sincerely and genuinely ask you if everything was okay, giving you permission to open up like that to where you felt safe. I feel like that one moment just pivoted you completely and you, it changed your life. Even though you were, you were doing it, you were on the right path and you were doing everything you could, but you can only do so much Mm -hmm. when you've been beat down so many times and you're trying to come back from that. You at some point have to have someone helping you just at least to give you some reassuring words to help you with coping skills and and give you some a place that you can vent. It just makes me think, you know, we all need to be working on trying to be that person for someone. Yes, it, it makes a big difference. And so I know a lot of people are wondering, like, you know, where's her dad? So that's like, you know, my highlight and why, what in, really inspired me to become a nurse. I went to go and visit my grandmother. And at that time, like I like I said, we were very isolated. So I wasn't seeing her. She's my grandmother on my dad's side. But my grandmother, like no matter how, how much time went by, she would always be like inviting and just warming every time I would come over. And it was just like her grandbaby. And just that day, she was just different. Like just, I could not figure out why. She would not let me in her house. She would just stand like very guarded at the door. And our conversation was very short. And so she sent me off like a few dollars, like a couple of bucks, I say like 70 bucks. And like I ended up leaving, but she would not stop like looking over my shoulder. I, I did notice that much. And it's almost like she was trying to stop me from seeing something. And as I leave and go to my car, like my friend is with me because I wasn't supposed to be driving by myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like as I'm walking, getting in a car, I see like this man walking down the streets, like pushing a basket. So I'm a very empathetic person. Like I, I've just always been like that. Like no matter who it is, I'm just like always like even my own mom. Like if I'm always like just feeling sorry, or just feeling like. Like I have to help people. And I just kept like looking, like trying to see like who this man was. And and it was just something like just drawing me to this man. And he gets like closer and I just like, I'm looking at him. And it took me a minute to recognize because he had like a lot of facial hair and just ungroomed, like, you know, poor hygiene. And I realized like that man was my father, like, And that really opened up my eyes because we see like these people on the street. And I know like a lot of people see people on the street and they think like, okay, it must be like their fault. That's the reason why they're here. They don't deserve anything. But I can tell you like my father was the sweetest man in the world. (laughs) Like he was a firefighter. He was married at one point and all that was taken away from him when I was about like in the third grade. And when I saw him, I was probably about 19, 20 years old in college. So it had been like a big gap in between that. But like when I was in the third grade, I got a phone call that my my father had like had a drink spiked or something like that. And I don't, I haven't done enough research on it. I don't understand why like that could reverse somebody completely compared to somebody else. I don't know if he 
he did do drugs after that too. So that could have made it a lot worse. But um, basically that night, after that night, he just wasn't the same anymore. Somebody slipped something into his drink and he basically, I don't know, like a more professional term. So just call it a crackhead. And so he basically became a crackhead on the street, like pushing baskets and things. And so that really pushed me into like even more severe depression because it was like everybody around me was just like something like my mom, my stepdad, you would think that that would like kind of make up for my father being absent, but it was just like worse. Like, who do I have? And I really just didn't understand because my dad, he was like that person that I could go to, like how my professor is now, how I'm like always under her. That was my dad when I was little. And I, even though I barely would see him when I did, it was nothing to love. So that was my motivation to just be a nurse, be a mental health advocate. And of course, a child adolescent nurse because of that. And I noticed like the disparities that he had. And of course, my brother also lived as a homeless person. And to see like the resources that they have or the resources that they don't even know about that they need to know about. So that really inspired me to become a nurse. Um, Just seeing like everybody around me and just seeing how like we need to push mental health a lot more than what we do because people don't think that these type of things happen and they do. They're everywhere. Oh yeah, absolutely. When you first messaged me, you had talked about the ACE score and Mm -hmm. I probably learned about it at nursing school, but I didn't remember what it was. So I went and looked it up and you were saying that you had scored a nine on that Mm -hmm. and the highest you can score is a 10. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. You scored no, a ten. I had a ten, <laughs> and the high—that's the highest you can score. And mm-hmm. then I—I I took it and I scored a nine on it, and I was like, "Wow, this is really telling." I didn't remember seeing it before, and if I saw it in nursing school, like during my psych rotation or, or the semester I had psych, I, I probably just tried to like put it out of my head and not think too much about it because I, you know, I don't like to talk about it too much, my own childhood. And so if I saw something like that, I probably just sort of like put it to the side or didn't consider myself. You know, I didn't like answer the questions for myself maybe because it's just too hard to do that for me sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I think I, I really am thankful that you found the courage to be able to, to come on here and share your story with people. Um, because I know that's not easy, especially at your age. You're still so close to an age to when all of this happened. I mean, you went through your whole childhood experiencing this is what this your the formative years, the years where you were becoming who you're going to be. You were going through all of this. And for me, I feel like it's taken a long time for me to come out of all of that and cut, I guess, sort of rewire and undo a lot of the things that I went through because for a long time I basically tried to pretend like it didn't happen I didn't talk about it I tried to I thought I would think to myself if I talk about what happened in my childhood it makes me a victim and if I give them power over me if I talk about it so I didn't talk about it. And I think that by me not acknowledging it and not wanting to talk about it to anyone, even people that I trust, it just made it probably exacerbated the situation and it caused me to go through a few years of 
pretty severe depression. There's got to be people listening to this who are relating to that right now. And it's important for them to hear that they do not have to be defined by anything that happened in their childhood. You can, there's no doubt that we are the product of our experiences. You can't help it. We are the product, you know, I mean, you just are. We, I know that I'm, I'm who I am, whether I want to be or not, because of the, of the things that happened to me. My, I, my biological mother was, she had severe mental health issues. She had seven children. I was, you know, I was the youngest of seven. She was not able to take care of any of her children. And so we all just sort of went different ways. And I ended up in foster care for most of my childhood and, and um, stayed with one family in particular for an extended period of time. And there, there was just a lot of abuse over throughout my childhood from a, from the, my earliest memories as a child. My very first memory that I can remember as a child was abuse, mm-hmm. and um, and and you know, and it, and it was sexual abuse. And I, I hate even saying that. I I don't say that out loud very often. And it happened throughout my childhood, and it became normal for me. Like that was a normal thing. You know, just. It wasn't until I was older that I realized that what I had gone through was not normal. I mean, I knew going to school, and just like what you said, you see other people. And what I tended to do growing up is to try to basically pretend like I was like them <laughs> instead of <laughs> what, what I was. I tried to emulate their behavior, and I tried to emulate their the way they dressed and that sort of thing. And it, it never, I never could because I didn't have the... I didn't have the money. I didn't have the the family. So, I, so as what you were saying, I I would go to someone else's house, but they would ne- I would never have them come to my house, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was just hard. And uh, I think as a child, I don't think I saw myself as a victim, or I didn't see myself. I didn't. I think children have such amazing cro- coping mechanisms. Like yes. they don't understand. Yes. Have, <laughs> yeah. Even if you, the most severe abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't necessarily want to get into like all the stuff that happened to me just because I don't think it's, I don't feel, I feel like I can say that I I suffered severe abuse and people understand what that means. And I don't have to go through, you know, like details, but I, I still didn't understand that I was a victim until I was older. So it wasn't until I was an adult that I really feel like I suffered from it because I was surviving this whole time. And then when I got to be an adult, the memories of it are what tormented me and, Mm just trying to not be defined by it, trying to pretend like it didn't happen, trying not to be affected by it, all the while being affected by it and trying to get the, the images out of my head and the the words out of my head the, and definitely always feeling inadequate, feeling like I don't deserve any you know things. I don't deserve to be happy. I don't deserve relationships with people and that sort of thing. And so there were several people, I think, in my early childhood that I could... I could equate with your instructor, with your professor, and over over the over time, there were people that would come along, and even if they didn't know it, they were a positive influence in my life, and they they somehow something that they said it might have just been a one time thing experience. They may not even realize it, but just them saying things to me that helped me feel like I I was worthy of something better. And that I I could be a better person. So there were different people. My husband, when I met him, he 
was the main reason that I was able to really turn my, my life completely around, or at least to get stable, because he had all, it was exactly the opposite of my life. And I definitely never felt like I deserved him. I didn't, I never felt like I deserved his love. And I always wondered if at some point he was going to regret, regret marrying me, honestly. And so at, he he never he never has if he if he if he if he did he's never said it he's always acted like he he's he doesn't regret it but I feel like he was that person for me and I think that we all need to try to and if you know if people that are listening if they if they can relate to what we're saying and it doesn't have to be you know the most severe abuse you can think of it doesn't or for, for, it can be anything from emotional abuse to from just being isolated, being the child who's not part of, so, you know, a child of divorce who then has to live with their, you know, one parent and a step parent, and they don't feel like they belong. Sometimes, even if, even if that's the healthiest as you could possibly make that situation, and both parents, the step parent and the biological parent are trying as hard as they can, it can still be really hard for that child to feel like they're part, because you can't help it. You have children that are that come from both of those people. And so that child that has, you know, the step parent can't help but feel. So all of this stuff is things that we needed to think about that helps form our, who we are. And we have to fight against it all the time. So if you guys are listening to this and you can relate to this, I would like for you to send me an email or uh, message me on social media or however, and just feel free to talk to me about it. Tell your story. Definitely let me know if you're comfortable with me, re- you know, repeating anything. I, I, I'm not going to say, you know, last names or anything like that, but I would love to hear from you. I want to be that person for someone. And I think that this, by us talking about this out loud, there are thousands of people that listen to this podcast. I know there are a lot of people that are going to relate to it and Hopefully, we can make a difference in their lives. So the bad story that we're talking about, and I'm just going to say bad story because there's so many different people that are involved in this, but it's the story of Beth Thomas. And Beth Thomas was this little six-year-old girl who is the subject of a documentary from 1990. And it is probably one of the most chilling and disturbing videos I have ever seen in my entire life. And you guys know, this is after doing over 70 episodes, you know I've seen some chilling and disturbing videos. I've never seen anything like it. So, Jer, you saw saw this. I I sent you the link. (laughs) It was shocking. That was... Yeah, it gave me chills, like towards really throughout the video, the mm-hmm. documentary. But that that was probably the most bizarre thing I've seen before. You can't watch it without just being deeply moved um, and just disturbed by it. But it's so educational, and I'm so thankful that it exists. So Beth Thomas, when she was six years old, her she had been adopted. She and her brother, her younger brother had been adopted by this couple who could not have children. And they decided they would want to share their life with with children. And so they decided to adopt. And so they adopt this little brother and sister. They were not told that anything, that there was anything, any reason to worry about them, their health, that they were completely healthy. 
And so then they started noticing some interesting behavior from Beth, the oldest. And so what they were noticing is one of the first things that they noticed is she was masturbating. And that's that's very young for that sort of behavior. And she was doing that in very inappropriate places. Like her her adopted mother said she would be in the backseat of a car in a parking lot, a public parking lot, you know, uh, that sort of thing. And she would talk to her and tell her, this is not an appropriate thing for you to be doing out in public. And she just, it was as if she really could not control it. So... There were some other things she was doing. They noticed that her little brother was getting injured. And at one point, she, this adopted mother heard her younger brother yelling. And she went down into the basement and Beth had him down on the floor. And it was a concrete floor, banging his head against the floor. And she said, what are you doing? You know, and of course she picked up the little boy and he was, his head was bleeding and he was injured really bad. And Beth was trying, she, Beth admitted in this documentary, this little six-year-old blue-eyed brown-haired girl that looks like the most, you know, the child out of a Norman Rockwell painting, just beautiful Mm -hmm. little girl. And she very uh, matter-of-factly told the therapist that she was trying to kill her little brother when she did that. She was, there were some other behaviors too that her adoptive mother talked about. For instance, she, there were some baby birds that she went out and was going to play with them. And the, the, her adoptive mother said, you cannot touch them because you'll hurt them. You can hurt them and, and they won't be alive anymore. And then the next day she went out and the birds were on the, on the ground. And, and Beth admitted to the therapist in this video that she picked them up and was playing with them too rough and that she squeezed them. And she also admitted in the documentary to uh, taking some knives from the kitchen. And her, her and her mother said that she saw, noticed the knives were missing and she immediately thought of Beth. And then she said she felt guilty for thinking of Beth. She wanted to try to give her the benefit of the doubt and she felt guilty. So she didn't ask her about it. And then she had not said anything to Beth. And then at some point, Beth brought it up and said, what color are the, are the knives that are missing? That part scared me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it did. It really did. It was, it's just um, so spine tingling. Mm-hmm. And her, her mother said, that she looked at her right then and she knew, she knew she had them. Obviously, she hadn't even told her they were missing. And she said, how do you know that they're missing, Beth? And she said that Beth looked at her and she kind of grinned. And she said she has this grin that she does that's, she said, it's not a happy, nice, sweet smile. It's very menacing. And she said she just looked at her and grinned like that at her and she knew she had the the knives. So the therapist asked Beth about the knives and Beth said, yes, I, I took them. And he said, where did you take them from? And she said, I took them from the drawer and I took them from the dishwasher. So she, she answered all of these questions very honestly, openly, just w- without hesitation. She was very precocious. She, she just... It was like, it's like she's so much older than she was 
to be, it's, and it's like she understood. And I know that they have probably had therapy sessions. And so she, they probably had tried to explain to her why she was doing some of this, why she had some of this behavior, why she was feeling this way. And I understand this. I don't think that her, her responses to the therapist was necessarily parroting back what she had heard because you could tell the way she was saying it, that she understood it. She got it. She, because he said, uh, you know, and he asked her, why do, what, what were you planning on doing with those knives? And she said, I wanted to hurt my brother and my, and my mom and dad. And, she, and he said, how did you want to hurt them? She said, I wanted to kill them. I mean, just came right out and said it. Mm-hmm. And I think that she did that because he gave her an environment there where he made her feel very comfortable, that she could be open and honest without consequences, without repercussions. She could say exactly what she was feeling and what she was thinking. And she did. She was very honest. It's just it's just so disturbing to watch it. So to sort of explain what happened and the reason that this happened. So you can imagine being the adoptive parents of this little girl mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, how do you deal with this? First of all, she would get up in the middle of the night and go into her brother's room and punch him in the stomach and do things to hurt him. And they, to they, when they found that out, they realized they had to basically uh, barricade her in her room because Otherwise, they were risking her little brother getting hurt or even killed. So they did not know how to deal with this whole situation at all. They were trying; they were reaching out for help, and that's what this therapist was trying to do: was to try to to help them and help Beth. So what what they figured out is that Beth, uh, when she was little, so she was nineteen months old, and her brother was seven months old. Her their mother died. They they had mom and dad at home. Well, the mother got sick with some sort of kidney disease and the mother died. And from that point up until they were taken from, taken from the home, they were abused and neglected. And to the point that her little brother was, when he was found with baby bottles that had spoiled milk in them, urine, old urine in the crib, and... Beth had been severely sexually abused. She, When she was talking about it with the therapist, she talked about how her father would abuse her until she bled and things like that. And so this is what she went through from, a, I'm, I'm sure her very first memory that she had was of being abused. And what they, what the experts were saying and what the therapist was saying was that she had attachment disorder. And she could not, she did not have the ability to bond with another person because she didn't trust anyone. She did not understand that someone could be, you know, could love her. And she didn't know what, she, she had not experienced love up to that point. And it just created this rage inside of her. And the way they described it is that when she was little and she would cry for something, for most people, for most babies, when they cry, their mother or their father, they give them what they need. And then that is soothing to them. But there are some children who go through this where they cry and scream for something and they're not, they don't get what they need. They have no reassurance. They have, they're not soothed in any way. And that then becomes rage in them. 
This does not happen necessarily to every person. This is just something that happens to some babies, some children. And this happened to Beth in particular. And and it caused her to, to lash out and project that rage onto her little brother and her adoptive parents. So when they... Uh, so they videoed this whole therapy session and you can see this little girl talk very freely and openly about having the desire um, and the urge to hurt her brother, hurt her adopted uh, parents, hurt animals. They had lots of animals in the home. And then the therapist felt like there, re- it was, there was really not, it was not safe for her to stay in the home and in with her brother and with with her parents. She was going to have to have a special place to go. So they had a woman who was was trained, I guess, to deal with children who have attachment disorder. And she brought Beth into her home. Her name was Connell Watkins. Mm -hmm. And she brought Beth into her home. And she basically... What she said that she did, this is her, this was her theory or her way that she felt like would work to reintegrate her, to train her, teach her how to attach to someone. She took everything away from her because Beth had pretty much did whatever she could to have power over everyone around her. She would not give pow- power over to anyone because she didn't trust anyone. And and this is and when I say this, I'm talking. I'm I'm saying this is. Connell Watkins theory and this is how she dealt with it. I'm not saying that this is accurate, okay? Just for anyone listening, I just want to put that out there. I'm just telling the story the way the way I read that it happened. Um and so she took everything away from her, all of her freedom, all of it to the point that she had to ask for everything, had to ask to go to the bathroom, had to ask for something to drink, from something to eat, everything. And she said the reason she did that is because she had to establish control over her because she wouldn't give control up. And also she had to obviously monitor her because she couldn't trust that she wouldn't hurt someone in her own household. Well, after doing that, when she saw that Beth could handle freedom, she would give her freedom back to her. And to, she finally got to, to the point that she trusted her with her own daughter sleeping in the same room with her own daughter and be alone being alone with her animals and Beth got to the point that she could uh, be adopted by someone and so this uh, well, a woman by the name of Nancy Thomas adopted her and Nancy Thomas was experienced with foster children who had traumatic childhoods so she was a good person to sort of take over uh, the care of Beth and continue that therapy, I guess, or basically finish raising her. And so Beth grew up, this little girl that you see on the video that a lot of people, I would dare say, might watch it and think there's no way that girl will ever be, quote, normal. There's no way she's she's never going to be able to overcome this. She grew up to, she went to nursing school. She became a neonatal flight nurse. And she has won awards, multiple awards for being an amazing nurse. She's She goes around and talks about her story to try to make a difference in other people's lives. She's learned how to be, she learned how to be 
a loving and caring person and how to let other people love and care for her. And the really amazing thing about that documentary is at the end of it, when it was at the end of the therapy, when she had really kind of changed and was had overcome, it was the point at which the therapist, uh, Connell Watkins said that she trusted her with her daughter and, and with her animals. The person interviewing her asked her some questions, and one of them was about how she felt about all of the things that she had done and things that had happened, and if she understood who it hurt. And she was talking about how it hurt her brother and hurt her family, and it also hurt she hurt herself and she started crying and it that was what was it was so touching to see that because you could see that she obviously had changed her little heart you know had softened up to the point that she recognized the pain that she had caused and she felt remorse for it and regret and she was sad and it was just heartbreaking but yet it was encouraging at the same time because of that little girl with all the stuff that she went through and that um, attachment disorder that she was suffering from, if she was able to overcome that, that gives hope to me, that gives hope to anyone. Yes. So just to um, say that Beth Thomas is not the bad nurse, I definitely want to make sure everyone understands that she is, she's amazing. And I, I, I would I consider her the good nurse of this story. And that's why this, this uh, episode is so different, but or it's one of the reasons, but the bad healthcare professional in the story is actually, uh, and this is sort of odd, but it's actually the therapist who took her in to help her and that helped turn her life around. And that's Connell Watkins because a few years after this happened, Connell Watkins and another therapist, Julie Ponder, along with two therapeutic foster parents were performing what what they considered a rebirthing session a uh, rebirthing therapy or something like that on a child well just a horrific thing happened and basically this woman who happened to be a nurse as well this uh, woman was a nurse and she was single she wanted to adopt a child she adopted this child when she was 6 her name was Candace by the time she was 10 her adopted mother said that she just did not feel like she was bonding with her. She wouldn't let her hug her. She wouldn't let her show her any affection. And she just didn't feel like they were bonding. And she was trying anything she could to get help for Candace. And so she reached out to Connell Watkins Clinic. Actually, she reached out to a psychotherapist who referred her to Connell Watkins Clinic. And she went there and paid $7,000 for therapy for Candace, her daughter, and the therapy was rebirthing. And what they did is they brought her, it was a two week long therapy session. And so on one of the days that they were doing this um, therapy, they did the, they were performing the rebirthing therapy, which involved wrapping this 10 year old 70 pound girl in flannel sheets and pillows. And then the four adults, the two therapy the, uh, the two therapeutic foster parents, Connell Watkins and Julie Ponder, the two, quote, therapists, they sat on top of her and put pressure on her. And their combined weight was over 600 pounds, by the way. But they put pressure on her, in their own words, to emulate 
the birthing process, and they want her to struggle and fight her way out as if she was had to get through the birthing canal. And then when she came out, she was supposed to then bond with her adopted mother. And that is rebirthing. That's what that's what it is. Well, during performing this session or this therapy session, it lasted 70 minutes. For 40 minutes of the 70 minutes, she was squirming and crying and yelling out, yelling for help, saying she couldn't breathe, saying she was going to die. One of the therapists was taunting her back, calling her a quitter, telling her, go ahead and die, and that sort of thing. And after 70 minutes, the last 30 minutes, you couldn't hear her. By the way, this was recorded. This whole session was recorded, and that's they had the whole thing on tape to prove that it happened. When they released the sheets, she was blue, and she wasn't. she didn't have a pulse. She wasn't breathing. Her mother, being a nurse, when she looked through, uh, when she saw that that she looked different, she could tell, she ran into the room and said, she's not, something's wrong. She's not breathing. And she started CPR. And they called 911. By the time the paramedics got there, they continued to try to perform CPR. They were never able to get a pulse. And when they got her to the hospital, they pronounced her dead of asphyxia. So she suffocated during that session. And those two therapists, quote therapists, were tried and convicted and sentenced to 16 years in prison. And Connell Watkins served seven of the 16 years and then was released on parole with very strict restrictions of you know, not being able to be around children and that sort of thing. And that, you know... I, when I hear that, when I hear that story, I, I, there are so many stories about that on the internet. And of course, there's all these news articles and everything. It was a huge story when it happened at the time. But and there's been a movie made about it. There's been like Law and Order episode that was called The Cage, that was about this. That. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's so shocking to me, and that and so hard to even imagine this happening because it's not like they were. It's not like they were abusing, you know, like in a dark room or in, you know, in a, in, you know, at their house where no mm-hmm. one could see. It was, it was this what they considered legitimate practice, and with under the oversight of the parent and videotaping it. It's just I cannot wrap my hand around my I cannot wrap my head around this. How in the world these people? who called themselves professionals thought that this was okay. And jur- th- what drives me crazy too about this is that this is this process of quote rebirthing still goes on today in many states. That's insane. How? That's insane. It should I, be illegal. Well, in in Colorado and North Carolina, they passed laws called Can- uh Candace's law mm-hmm. to to make sure that this doesn't happen to another child. So it's illegal in those two states to perform these rebirthing, I don't know what, rituals or whatever you want to call them, but I can't believe that it's actually legal in in other states. And maybe they've changed the way that they do it so that it's not, they can't suffocate. I don't know. But when I was reading up on this, Beth Thomas's adopted mother, Nancy Thomas, she is a therapist who 
is a advocate for this rebirthing and the whole attachment therapy thing. And she's not a therapist. She's not, she doesn't have a degree. She doesn't, you know, she's not in any way a professional therapist, but she's got, I guess, decades of experience with children who are suffering from this. And so if you look at that, there are these websites that look, they're they're very professionally done. And they look, if you're a parent and you're desperate to find answers for your children and or your child and you've gone all the traditional routes and you can't you, you're not getting any answers I could see why they would I mean this this woman Jeannie Newmaker Candace's mother she spent seven thousand dollars she she was desperate she wanted to help her daughter and that's that's just heartbreaking to me I don't understand how how this can even be a thing but it happened and this sort of thing is still going on. It may be to a different degree. Maybe I'm ignorant about it. If you're listening to this and and I'm and I don't I'm not maybe I'm not understanding something, but I do know that the American Psychi- uh, Psychiatric Association does not approve of the quote attachment therapy that is done. Mm-hmm. It's definitely considered an alternative. And so I, it just sounds dangerous to me. And and I, I get emails from, from people all the time who <laughs> are disappointed by my opinions about things sometimes because I they, they just, you know, they think I'm coming from a, a place of ignorance. Maybe I am. And I want you to continue to email me and let me know when you, it, tell me your opinion because I can, I will, if, if I, if I listen to you, if I read what you have to say and, and I feel and I understand it, and I feel like I'm wrong. I'm I'm definitely the kind of person I'll I'll change my mind about something, and I want you to I want you to make me a better person by telling me if you disagree with me. That I love open dialogue. I don't want you to just stop listening just because you don't agree with something I say. You know, let's have a conversation about it. But this is sad to me. This is horrifying, and I think it's reckless of someone to to do something like this. And you know, this is a, a child's life we're talking about. So I guess that wraps up our our bad story and, and good and good story and everything for the whole episode. <laughs> I want to just sort of end on because we normally, you know, we end on a good note because yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to end on a good note. And what I want to the, the good note here is we Jer and I, Tina, I think are good nurses for one thing. So we can be the good nurse too. (laughs) Beth Thomas, think about this. When you watch, my son Levi was watching the video of the the documentary, which some of you are going to be like, oh my gosh, you let your kid watch that. First of all, he's he's 15. Second of all, this is reality. This happened. And we don't need to just bury our head in the sand and pretend like stuff like this doesn't happen. It happens. Hold your head up and admit it that it happens, and then do something about it. You know, don't just let leave these kids out there to fend for themselves. Uh, but then also, Levi felt so much better when I said, "Do you want to see what this little girl looks like now?" And he was like, "Yeah." And, I, and so I went and found Beth Thomas, uh, a recent a p- picture of her as an adult, and she's this gorgeous, beautiful, you know, huge smile person, and. I said, she now goes around and talks about her experience and she helps other people and she's a wonderful nurse. 
And his, he just, this huge smile came across his face. So it actually is a good story. We are ending on a good note because in spite of all the horrible, depressing, terrible things that happened to me as a child, that happened to Jur as a child, that happened to Beth as a child, we've overcome all that stuff. That's not who we are now. It helped form us. Yeah, it helped make us strong people. It helped make us fighters. It helped make us advocates for people who are, who are victims. It helped make us, you know, change agents and want to be a better person and make the world a better place and fight against all of that. So this, we are ending on a positive note, right, Jer? <laughs> right. I'm okay with who I am. Um, mm-hmm. My background does not define who I am. Mm-hmm. Dina's background does not define who she is. Mm-hmm. And this background does not define who she is. Mm-hmm. So um, that's just to say that it's okay to acknowledge it. It's okay mm-hmm. to be different, um, to experience things that other people haven't experienced. And sometimes we don't know if people have experienced those things. So it's important for us to get out there and just say that these things are, they're not okay, but it doesn't have to make you who they think you would be because of those situations. Like, Mm -hmm. In my hometown, a lot of people will look at people and be like, oh, yeah, this person is not going to be anything because they went through this and their parents are like this. But you don't have to be like that. Like a lot of people are just hearing my story. People who've been close to me for the longest are just now hearing things that I've been through and they would have never guessed it. A lot of people in my college now, they think like, oh, your parents must be supportive. There's this, there's that. Mm-hmm. No, I do everything on my own. <laughs> so it just goes to show like, just be whoever you want to be and don't be afraid to just get up and stand up for who you are and stand up for other people. And have your voice heard and be and tell your story. Tell your story to anyone that'll listen because don't be don't be ashamed of things that other people did to you don't be ashamed of things that you've done because you know, there's things I've done that I'm sure as a result you know of there's ways I've acted and attitudes that I've had I've probably there's no telling I, you we're all just a product of of our environment and the thing is just when you know better do better you know, that's what you have to do. If Once you have figured out a better way, just be a better person. And that's all any of us can do, right? Right. Don't be afraid to tell your story. Don't think that it's going to make you a victim or that it's going to somehow make you weak by or give your abuser power or anything like that. By telling your story and talking about it, don't be afraid of other people judging you. It may happen though. I will tell you that it may happen. And and the reason I know that is because over the years I, in conver- having conversations with people, if they don't know, which most, like I said, most people don't know because I don't go around talking about it, but people have said all kinds of things over the years about, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, I'm not surprised because they had a really bad childhood or yeah, they were sexually abused. So, and, and things like that. And I'm just kind of like standing there thinking, oh, wow, what do you, <laughs> what would you think of me? You know? And it's, you can't help it. And I, at the same time, I, I kind of give them a pass. I understand stereotypes. I totally get it. I know it's hard to overcome, but I want to challenge you to Try to recognize your, the stereotypes that you, and fight against them because it's not fair to someone who's who has worked so hard to overcome that and not 
not be the person who is a product of their upbringing, not be um, that uh, stereotypical case, you know? Like, we're wanna, we want to, in spite of all of that stuff, you know, come out on the other side of it and be a good person and make a difference. So give people the benefit of the doubt. If, if, they're, if you're talking to someone and something like that comes out, if you're talking to someone else, like if you're at work and someone says something about a coworker, like, oh, yeah, this, this happened or that happened, don't engage in that conversation. It's not fair to that person. You know, if they're not there, it's not a good idea to talk about other people behind their back. It's That's gossiping. Even if you meet, even if you're well-intentioned, it's gossiping. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let them be there and be present and be there to defend themselves to, um, to speak up for themselves. It's not your story to tell. Don't If it's not your story to tell, then don't tell it. So, you guys, this has been a hard episode. It's been kind of rough. I'm really glad I got through it and have come out on the other side of it. I don't know what in the world, but I get emails all the time. Every episode that's released, I get emails from people. And a lot of, most of them are good. And some of them are like, I was so disappointed in what you said this and this. And I'm like, oh gosh. And sometimes, a lot of times when they say that, I'm disappointed in myself. I feel like, oh gosh, I can't believe I said that. That was ignorant, you know. But hopefully I can be a better person and learn from it. You guys let me know if I said something stupid. I, I want to hear it. And uh, I want to hear your stories too. So be sure and go to our website, goodnursebadnurse.com. Look us up on Instagram. Uh, Jer, do you want people to follow you on Instagram? If you do, you can tell them. Sure. xoxo.jehr. So look her up on Instagram and follow her. And you can follow us at Good Nurse Bad Nurse Podcast, GNBN Podcast on Facebook. And um, send us some feedback and let us know what you think. And I also want you guys to remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, (laughs) be a good nurse. Right. (laughs) 